Welcome to Sports Bolt, a Baltimore sports collectibles podcast. I'm Danny Black, and in this podcast, I'll be talking about sports cards, collectibles, and the entire hobby industry. We're going to cover topical news, industry guests, and anything else that crosses my mind. I hope you'll subscribe, join us as often as I can get these out, and enjoy the episode. All right, and welcome back to another episode of Sports Bolt. I want to take a chance to uh, kind of delve into two different things. We're going to have a lot of guests, and some are going to come from the perspective of an investor, and some are going to come from the perspective of a collector. Uh, today, we have uh, Ezra Levine joining us from Collectible.com, and uh, that's, that's an investment platform. I'm a big fan, and we'll get into that later. But a lot of people confuse collector and investor, and I just wanted to kind of touch on the differences so you can really figure out who you are and take an approach to the hobby that it fits for you. An investor is somebody who's always looking at price. Buy low, sell high, like any other product. Um, you do need to decide if you know, you're know you a vintage uh, investor or a, a long-term investor. Uh, vintage uh, typically ends uh, around 1970 if you're talking cards. Um, vintage memorabilia can be a good investment. Uh, you, you can speculate on future markets. Uh, there are vintage markets opening up in, in non-traditional sports, such as soccer, hockey, and uh, the prices on those are undervalued compared to some of the major sports. And those could be good long-term investments. Uh, a lot of times you're prospect hunting, buying uh, the new cards and the rookies of the prospects. Bowman Chrome Auto has changed the baseball world for investors. Have to have, to have the uh, Bowman First Auto rookie. Now, if you are an investor, it is something that needs to be actively managed if it's day-to-day. Um, if you're a long-term investor, uh, the categories really that to, to be safe personally, I recommend, is going to be the memorabilia that's one-of-a-kind or uh, certainly very limited, but also vintage cards I do prefer and sealed boxes of uh, wax and cases I think are by far a safer bet long-term and they tend to appreciate uh, at, at a rate that, that certainly uh, beats a lot of traditional assets. Um, if, if you're a short-term investor, th- then you're talking about actively managing. You're talking about buying and selling. If you're not actively buying and selling, uh, there, there is no profit to be made. Now, a collector, and a lot of people confuse this, it, it, a lot of times you know, you're, you're buying for the long-term, and it's not just about the money. I know a tremendous amount of people that collect a certain team. Uh, Minnesota Twins, uh, you know, in their history, you can probably buy most of their uh, starting lineups over time. A certain player, uh, Cal Ripken, is huge in this area. There are some tremendous Cal Ripken collections. Cal, over the course of his career, people may not know this, had thousands and thousands of different baseball cards printed. So this is one of those things that you can work on for years. Personally, I worked on the set of uh, 1954 Baltimore Orioles. Uh, it was one of the early years of Tops. It's a beautiful set visually. And it was the first year the Orioles were in Baltimore. So for me, putting together the 54 Orioles set was one of those collector things that uh, I like to do personally. You hear a lot of people use the term PC, and that stands for personal collection. And a lot of times with the personal collection, the grade doesn't matter as much. You have a lot less pressure, uh, especially if it's a vintage collection. Uh, you know, the, the expression, buy the card, not the grade. Uh, really does hold true. Um, so you can get what you want and collect there. So figure out who you are. And when you're shopping and going to shows, uh, you know, if, if you are a collector, wait for the right uh, item, wait for the right card, wait for the right price. Um, or if you're hunting for something completely rare, don't miss the opportunity and jump on it when you find it. Uh, and if you're an investor, use analytics. They're available all over the place now. Figure out what you're really targeting 
and uh, stay away from the breaks, stay away from the short-term stuff. That's not a, not a good investment strategy. Uh, that's an entertainment expense. So uh, we'll have an interview uh, with Ezra from collectible.com coming up in a minute. And I uh, just wanted to kind of give you a, a philosophy so you can think about as we talk uh, certainly about the investing side uh, of fractional ownership, uh, what that means versus being a collector. And we'll get into this in future weeks also. But th- these are some of the questions that I get, and I want to share some of my thoughts uh, so you can kind of think about what you have, what you want, and what your goals are. Thank you so much, and let's talk to Ezra. Welcome back to Baltimore Sports Collectible, a sports ball podcast. We are very lucky to have Ezra Levine, CEO of Collectible, with us today. Uh, selfishly, this, this is one of my favorite things in the hobby, and I've been dying to talk to Ezra. So thank you so much for coming on. No, of course, always. So a uh, ton of information we're going to get to. We're going to talk about collectible. We're going to talk about the men collective. But I really, you know, and our listeners really want to know from, from a hobby standpoint, because you can't get into this uh, if you're not a lover of the hobby and a lover of sports. Uh, how did you come to your relationship with cards? And I believe it is a relationship for people. And uh, kind of where, where you got started. I know uh, your family was involved. And uh, sh- share that. I give my dad all the credit. I give my dad all the credit. He's, he's collected for as long as I can remember. Uh, in fact, you know, some of his closest friends to this day are his hobby buddies. And I remember when I was a kid, he would always go to the national. What is what I now realize was the national with about, you know, four guys who none of us had ever met before, but you know, we're always close friends who are calling the house and calling you know him to, to check, you know, on, on what he's buying and selling and to make deals. And, you know, his love of it was, you know, was tangible. And, um, you know, so he would go off on, you know, to various shows or he would, he would you know, he'd be bidding on things at, at auctions. I don't even think, you know, I don't even think digital auctions or, or you know, sort of online auctions were a thing. I think he literally went to the physical locations on site in New York City. The Heritage would set up a gallery or something. He would go and, you know, he loved it. He'd come back and show us what he purchased, explain why he purchased it. And again, I don't think we had the full appreciation for the material at that point, but we had a full appreciation for how much passion, how much love he had for it, how much fun he was having, uh, you know, how, how it gave him such joy. And ultimately, you know, he also liked to talk about the times where he, where he made money doing it. And so, you know, I, we, we grew up in a family, of, you know, of a good collector who really kind of brainwashed us, for lack of a better term, at a young age. And then, you know, like pretty much every other kid, you know, grew up in America, in, in the 1990s, I collected baseball cards. I collected basketball cards. And I would be at summer camp, and instead of you know parents perhaps sending a care package of candy to their kid, my dad would send boxes of baseball basketball cards. And it was just it was just a big part of my of my childhood, and honestly. And you know, from that, obviously, I think that's probably a familiar story for a lot of people. It's just something that I look back on very fondly, and I'm just I'm really grateful to be in a position where I get to do this for a career and. And my dad is still very much alive, very much a part of this. And I think it, it's, it's a really great relationship builder for, for, for me and my dad as well. So growing up, you're, you have your dad who's a Mickey Mantle fan. Um, I grew mm-hmm. up, my dad was an Orioles fan. We're in Baltimore. So I, I heard nonstop stories of Johnny Unitas and Brooks Robinson. Um, other than Mickey Mantle, who were kind of your sports influences that, that were passed down? Or who were the active players when you were growing up? And uh, you're a little younger than I am. Uh, but uh, where did you grow up, and who were who your guys? So I was born. I was born in Connecticut. I was born in Connecticut. You know, you're you're, you're right in saying <clears throat> that my my dad grew up in Western Massachusetts in a town called Springfield, Massachusetts, where the Basketball Hall of Fame is located. 
in Springfield, Massachusetts, there's a pretty clear split. You know, some are Yankee fans, some are Red Sox fans. It's, you know, it's, it's Western Mass, right? So it's not, you know, confirm, confirm Red Sox territory. It's close enough to Hartford, Connecticut, which is, you know, which, which can be uh, Yankee territory as well. So, you know, he, uh, my, my, my grandpa Irving, my dad's dad, was actually first a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. And then when the Brooklyn Dodgers moved, he became a Yankees fan. So, you know, he passed along the, the, the love of the Yankees and Mickey Mantle to my dad. My uncle Scott, uh, because I, I'm sure for no other reason than sort of sibling rivalry, became a Red Sox fan. He used to torment my dad all the time, although my dad's teams were, were, were better than my uncle's teams at, the, at that point. Um, so, you know, I, I always grew up hearing about the Yankee greats, right? Hearing about Mantle, hearing about Ruth, hearing about Gehrig. Uh, you know, and then uh, when I was growing up, I became a Yankee fan too. I, I was, you know, I, I adopted my dad's favorite team and my grandpa's favorite team. So I was a Yankee fan. I was lucky enough to be. That's been growing up in the 90s in New York. So I Jeter and O'Neill and Rivera. I mean, those, those were my guys. I, it, was a, it was a really fruitful childhood when it came to Yankee baseball. Uh, but, you know, it's funny that you mentioned Baltimore. It's funny you mentioned Baltimore because I, I have an older brother. Like, my dad has an older brother. And, of course, for no other reason than sibling, sibling rivalry, I'm sure, my brother chose to be an Orioles fan, actually. My brother was a diehard I'm, Baltimore I'm sorry, Orioles fan. Ezra, we're going to need to end it here, and I need your brother's number. <laughs> I will. I will give it to you. So here, here's the backstory and how we became an Orioles fan. So you know, when, when we were first growing up in Connecticut, we, we we moved to Manhattan when I was about three or four years old. But we went kept we kept the house in Connecticut for many years, and uh, so we'd spend every summer in Connecticut. We had um, what at the time felt like a palatial backyard. Although I drove by the house the other day and it was actually pretty small, but it felt big. It's so where we created you know sort of a little baseball diamond in our backyard, and my dad would literally roll us ground balls. Um, and he, uh, you know, he, he would, he would, we kind of emulate and have like, you know, a little play by play. It'd be fun. That's where you know, he'd roll his ground balls, we'd field it cleanly, hopefully, and throw it over to first base for the out. And uh, one time we were doing this, my brother said, you know, who is a shortstop that I should emulate? Who is a shortstop I should emulate? And this is pre Derek Jeter. Right? So my, my, my dad promptly said, there's a guy by the name of Cal Ripken Jr. who plays for the Baltimore Orioles. He's quite the ball player. You should, you should. You know, you should emulate Cal Ripken Jr. And my brother is a fanatic and he takes things literally at times. And he became a Cal Ripken Jr. fanatic, which became a Baltimore Orioles fanatic. And I'll never forget, he actually convinced my parents, I don't know how he did this. He convinced my parents to paint his childhood bedroom orange and black. So he was a diehard Ripken fan. He was a diehard Orioles fan. And and this was back in the days of, you know, as as you probably don't even want to talk about, but, you know, like with Jeter and I was Jeffrey about to Mayer say, if you bring up Jeffrey Mayer, series, you know, I, we, we, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that yeah. off air. The language is not appropriate. I, I, yeah, but it, so it was a, like a, you know, it was a real rivalry back then. Yan- Yankees-Orioles was a real rivalry. It was a real thing. I remember, you know, we went to Camden Yards. We'd go to Camden Yards almost every year because my brother, you know, would, would make us go, you know, have a road trip. To the Camden. I remember, you know, we, we, we got a, a, a baseball bat from Sam Horn, who used to be an Oriole. And, and so, you know, it was just, a, it was something that we grew up with where, you know, the rivalry at the time actually wasn't Yankees Red Sox. It wasn't, you know, it was really, it was Yankees Orioles at that period of time. And so, you know, the, you know, I, I, I actually have very fond memories of Baltimore, just given the fact that or when I think of the Orioles in Baltimore, it reminds me of my childhood, even though we got into many screaming matches and kicking matches. And I'm sure I, I wound up in tears many a time. It was just something that I remember fondly about, about growing up is that Yankee Oriole rivalry when both teams were good and we were both young and 
all that stuff. So I, I actually consider myself a little bit of an Orioles fan at this point. Well, well. I was in college uh, at the time and I was at Emory in Atlanta. And if uh, people are not familiar with Emory, mm-hmm. Emory's made up of only Northeast uh, Jewish kids. And so my fraternity house was split half between Baltimore Oriole fans and half between Long Island Yankee fans. And we had every night, every room had the game on TV and there was more trash talk. And then Jeffrey Mayer ruined my life at that point, and we moved on. Um, so you, I, I assume you. I think I think it's it's funny. It all comes full circle because I think Jeffrey Mayer is actually also a user of the collectible platform. That's so, fantastic. Uh, so if I if you want me to make a contact, yeah, it's fantastic. He's he's a collector. He's a collector. I'm, I'm actually trying to get his Jeffrey Mayer uh, home run baseball if he still has it from that cheater game. I was about to say you, you know I'm, that might not be my first investment personally, but for the platform, it would be amazing. <laughs> Uh, right, right, right now I'm seeing all the uh, Baltimore uh, Babe Ruth cards. Uh, big, big fan of that on the platform. There you go. Uh, so I assume you're like a lot of people. Life hit. You grow up a little bit. Uh, get a job. Realize you're not going to be a professional baseball card dealer or a professional baseball card uh, baseball player. Um, and am I correct? You went into finance, but specifically, was there a sports angle to what you were doing? Yeah, so um, so I, I was in college uh, at the at the University of Michigan, and I, to be candid, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was a history major, and I, you know what, what a lot of people do when they don't know what they want to do is they apply to law school. So when I was a senior, I applied to law schools, and uh, ultimately I realized, even though I was about to go to one, that I really had no interest in practicing law or go to law school, and so I started making, you know, uh, you know. Uh, Sort of a lot of contacts, and I was interviewing a lot of places. And the first company that was dumb enough to offer me a job was a company called Bloomberg LP. It's a big, you know, financial markets data company. They've done, they've done pretty well. And you know, I knew nothing. Yeah, exactly. So, and I knew nothing about the markets, but I learned, and I actually wound up falling in love with it. I fell in love with it because in a lot of ways it reminded me of sports. Uh, I just love the action. I love the winners and losers. I love the scorecards. The, you know, the, the stock prices. I just I loved it. And, um, you know, I wound up getting plucked away by a New York City hedge fund who was looking for, you know, for a trader at the time. And, you know, I wound up spending 10 years on Wall Street and uh, not, you know, not, I don't want to go into too much of the details, but what ultimately happened is the fund that I was at gave back all the asset capital. We became a family office and all mandates went out the window when we started, you know, I was working directly with my principal and two other people and we were managing his personal wealth, his, his money. And we started doing some creative things. And, uh, you know, again, on the topic of being dumb enough to trust me with anything, he, he was dumb enough to trust me to co-found the minor league football league called the Spring League, uh, which really became kind of outlasted, you know, the, the XFL and the Alliance of American Football, you know, if you're familiar with minor league football, and uh, it became, you know, this profitable, you know, pro football showcase where, you know, we take guys who were sixth, seventh round draft picks in, in the NFL draft or undrafted, but still talent. And we put together these NFL showcases, essentially, where, you know, guys would get second opportunities to make the NFL. We ultimately sold it off to Fox Sports. And, um, you know, I found myself kind of at this intersection of, hey, you know, I've done finance. I, you know, I'm, you know, kind of an analyst or, you know, sort of PM on Wall Street. But I had this experience where, you know, I was sort of an entrepreneur and working, you know, in an entrepreneurial culture and sports. And ultimately, I realized that I just had so much more fun and I had so much more passion for kind of the, 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 the sort of entrepreneurial uh, itch in me, especially, you know, especially doing something entrepreneurial within sports that, that, that really got me going and really excited me. At that point, you know, when I kind of, you know, realized where my passions were, I started looking for other things within sports that I thought I was uniquely qualified to do. And 
And it was one of those moments. It's funny. I read a I read a transcript of a commencement speech recently given by Steve Jobs. I don't know why or how. I, 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 I know exactly this, the speech you're talking uh, about. That's great. So the, the, the theme of this speech, I think it was at Stanford, was connecting the dots, right? His whole thesis is you, you, you never know what dots in your life will connect, and you can't, it's impossible to know what dots will connect in the moment. But at some point in time, you'll realize that things that have happened to you, life experiences will all connect, and you'll know it when you see it. You'll know it when you feel it. Right? And that's, that's kind of what happened to me with Collectible, right? I had this background um you know in financial markets and you know i was a collector as a kid but really my dad was you know this inspiration he was a collector his entire life and i had this you know sports entrepreneurial opportunity and you know then collectible kind of you know um, started to form and essentially it was combining sports collectibles that i knew well and had you know kind of a lifetime interest in through my father and the financial markets which i had just spent sort of a decade doing and it was sports and it was entrepreneurship and so for me, that was the, the connect the dots moment where I said, you know what, I, you know, if it's not now, when? And I, I took a big leap of faith, and um, you know, and and that's and that's really the, the sort of genesis for collectible. Yeah, not a lot of people may not know that collectible existed actually before you uh, came on board. Uh, it was a, a company that gave you some, uh, I guess, auction valuations or some uh, asset valuations, um, and and was successful at that um, for certainly a period of time. They were one of the largest. Uh, who decided to pivot? Um, was that the management team that you joined? Were they pivoting before you joined? Is that the reason you got on board? How did that happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, they, they were they were pivoting prior prior to my arrival. So I was actually I connected with Collectibles as they were starting to make that transition, and they were looking for new management who had more of a you know sort of capital markets experience, who knew you know kind of the regulatory framework but also was young enough and hungry enough to, to kind of pursue the opportunity knowing that it wasn't going to be easy. And um, so almost, we almost randomly connected. Again, I was you know, kind of perked up about the idea of working in sports collectibles, seeing some of the opportunities there. And Collectible is a company who is you know, also transitioning. I love the name Collectible. Honestly, that's one of the things that I really fell in love with the most is I just thought, you know, that's IP and domain that is it would be impossible to get otherwise. I loved it. I thought it provided a lot of flexibility and optionality for us to take it in a lot of different directions. And um, ultimately, I, I really, I really connected with the guys who you know, I had originally kind of founded Collectible 1.0. And so, um, but yeah, I, I want to give all the credit to Jason Epstein and to Dave Yokin and to and to some of the of the founders of Collective 1.0 because I think that established established a really great foundation for what you see today. All right, I'm I'm going to talk for a little bit about Collectible, and if I have any mistakes, please correct me. Um, Collectible, just uh, let's give the thirty thousand foot view real quick, is a fractional uh, platform for investing in sports collectibles memorabilia. Fractional ownership is not a new concept. If you're old enough, uh, actually stock investing used to be full shares only through brokerage firms. That eventually, eventually became fractional. Uh, platforms like Robinhood took that to, to more of a user level with, with an interface that, that was far more acceptable. And there's been a transition over time from more of an analog stock market to a much more digital user interface. Collectible, in my opinion, picks up the best of that from a financial standpoint where you can use the analytics and you, you do have a, an extremely uh, user-friendly. I, I really love the, the new version of the app. And, uh, you know, I'm able to track my portfolio. And uh, I, I, to be clear to everybody, I am a user of Collectible. I, I have been almost since the beginning. Um, and uh, Ezra, you can verify I'm not being paid for any of this. Uh, and uh, I, 
Confirmed. Yeah, absolutely. Confirmed. So there's a couple of things to me that stick out. And th- these are for, you know, for people who, who are, uh, I guess, skeptical or, or, you know, you're worried about what you're getting into. Th- this is an investment opportunity. Th- this is not what you want to buy if you want to put in your man cave. This this is just this is an alternative asset. Some people uh, may want to invest in futures, Bitcoin, gold, whatever it may be. The sports collectible market has a return. Um, and, and you guys show the collectible uh, 25 to kind of keep an idea on uh, where the assets are on your platform. But the markets move on collectible just like they move on any other market. I think one of the things that's been really nice on the collectible platform is the volume of users and transactions have increased tremendously, uh, which really helps it in the investment side and, and seeing where the prices are going. One of the things that I think, and I've heard you talk about this before, was the retained equity um, idea on an item. And for those of you who are not familiar with the platform or didn't understand what you're looking at on the screen, an owner can actually put up an item and uh, have the SEC approve that for sale. But at the same time, they can pick a percentage uh, of that equity uh, in the item to retain. So if I have bought a uh, a card or uh, a bat or something like that um, for a million dollars, and you know we, we agree that the market cap on the bat may be uh, $2.5 million, I, I may choose to keep the, the one million as retained equity or you know maybe less in some cases. And that way I, I've protected myself and I also have a growth investment. Uh, just like any other IPO, there is a, I guess, a formula you guys use or an algorithm, and, I, and I've heard Dan talk about you know, some of the formulas they use to, to bring that stuff out. An IPO, you can either believe in the price of, of the market cap or not believe in the price. Invest in the IPO. It's really nice to get early access as a user to some of these. Uh, but then when the market hits, you know, the price can go up or down. So, so just like anything else, you, you got to take advantage of that. Um, Loop. Otis, there's some people who, who have done this in sports before you guys, so, so that you guys are, are not figuring this out, that this is very established. Uh, well, I think really what you've done is just t- take it to a premium level. Your assets are, are unmatched by any other platform. Um, I know you partnered with a lot of people in the industry early on, and you continue to do that. Um, and, and I just, you know, talk a little bit about some of the items. The, the cool factor, I, I think, is off the charts compared to, you know, when I look at Robinhood. Uh, so talk about the cool factor. Talk about the sports angle of, of the financial investing. Well, I'll tell you, if we're, if we're not paying you for this, which we're not, we probably should because, you know, that, that, that was definitely a hell of a promo for us. And I, we, we, we definitely appreciate that. Yeah, you know, I mean, look, I mean, you know, I've said for a while now that what I, what I have always loved about sports collectibles and always will is that it really is at the intersection of passion and profits, right? Passion is really, you know, is, is obviously evident. People are passionate about sports. People are, you know, the collector is just by nature a very passionate uh, person, right? Um, but there has historically and currently been a lot of money to be made. This has been certainly an asset class, even though a lot of people tend to poo-poo some of the investing elements of collecting. And certainly has been an area where a lot of money has been made before. The challenge and one that collectible hopes to address is and it really has never been accessible or at least in a liquid uh, format before to collectors, you know, fans, uh, investors, however you want to call yourselves. Yeah, and it's really priced out all but the wealthy few at the blue chip investing level. Obviously, you can get, you can buy collectibles at any price point, but historically, you know, the ones that are rare and scarce and in good shape and, um, you know, are historically and culturally significant are ones that 
in a lot of ways are, are out of reach for, for most people. So we really, you know, sort of sought out to democratize that to, but also really to create sort of a liquid framework for investing in collectibles. Obviously, you know, we're exclusively for uh, sports focused today, but you know, there are opportunities to expand with other categories, you know, sort of as well down the line. Yeah, the, the, the cool factor is something that is kind of hard to quantify, but you, you know it when you see it, right? And so our job is to, uh, you know, today, especially this is so young and we're trying to, you know, onboard new users and get people comfortable with the idea of, you know, as collectibles as investment opportunities and to really train hopefully a new generation of investors and collectibles. You know, we have been purposely curating items that are really cool, right? And when you see it, they're really, really cool. There's a lot of examples of that and there's a lot of examples of assets coming to the platform that are really, really cool. I and mean, I think, you know, that, uh, you know, that cool factor is certainly something that also adds to its value. And so, you know, we certainly, you know, think, um, you know, that a lot of the assets are particularly cool and, and we're, and we're thrilled that you, 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 you feel the same way. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I think one of the things that, uh, you know, people kind of misunderstand is anytime you're starting a new company and you're going through such a regulated industry, and this is SEC regulated, um, both from a marketing standpoint and a regulation standpoint, you know, you're going to have a learning curve and there's going to be bumps in the road. Uh, if I'm going to be frank, I think there was a little confusion over the Babe Ruth uh, release. I think people confuse market cap, sell prices, and I just want to kind of define those for, for people out there. Um, and once yeah. again, if, if I'm factually incorrect, please correct me. Uh, the Babe Ruth Museum had a card on loan uh, for many years, uh, and quite my understanding is they did not really understand what they have. It might have even been in the basement or not on display at the time. I forget. I actually go there uh, pretty regularly. But uh, the, the it came to light, and the person who owned it, that had it on loan to the Babe Ruth Museum, sold it in a private sale um, that set a record for a private sale, but that sale and the exact details were kept private, but it was confirmed at over $5 million to set the record. But then you've got something else, which is called market cap, and that's kind of agreed on price where, where it goes to the open market. So you do have a record-setting item. You do have a market cap uh, when the IPO hit of $6 million. And I just think some people misunderstood the difference in those two things and the sequential set of events that there was an intermediary owner. Um, and, and I think that's lost a little bit. You did not go to the Babe Ruth Museum, pay them $6 million, give them the card back, and start selling shares. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, think, I think you're right, right? I mean, I think, you know, that, that was something that, you know, it was such a cool thing that, that, that happened in the industry, right? And, you know, when, again, it was a very private sale. To, to, um, to correct you a little bit, the sale was in excess of $5.2 million. So the previous uh, records were $5.2 million for Mickey Mantle, 1952 tops. And then there was also a $5.2 million sale for a LeBron James Exquisite. This uh, Babe Ruth 1914 Baltimore news card, uh, we have, you know, we, we confirmed them many times. We've seen bank wires. We have, you know, sort of a letter on attorney letterhead. So we, we know for a fact that the sale happened in excess of $5.2 million for reasons that are not collectibles, for reasons, you know, of the, of the buyers and the sellers who wish to remain uh, confidential. We're just we're simply honoring their wish to, to, to keep the price uh, private, but confirmed. I've seen it. Our attorneys have seen it. Their attorneys have seen it. It was in excess of 5.2 million, which represented at the time uh, the most expensive card that had ever sold publicly or privately on record. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think the confusion was well. I mean, one, it's that obviously anytime 
you're saying that there's a record, right? And I think people just want to know what the record is, right? So, you know, I think I think there's a little bit of, you know, sort of you're, you're dangling the carrot without sort of, um, you know, sort of providing all the details, right? And so I, I think people thought that we left them on a cliffhanger, and we did. And we, you know, believe me, uh, it was killing nobody more than me to, you know, be the one who had to tell people it was a record, but not being able to really tell them exactly what it is. Uh, the, the other aspect I think that was confusing, yeah, I, I mean, some some of the press, and it was great that we got a lot of press, you know, it was on CNBC and The Athletic and ESPN, I mean, it was awesome for the company to, to have our name associated with, with a record. Um, but, you know, so, uh, it, uh, as, as you probably know, sometimes when there's press and external press, not all the facts are completely accurate at times. They don't always fact check. They don't always call you to confirm the details. They just print what they think is right without really always confirming the details. Um, actually, there were some outlets uh, who, you know, did confirm the details, and all those outlets were completely correct. And then there were a couple who didn't, who just ran with the headline. They may have seen it from another outlet without fact-checking. So it, it turned into a confusing thing, depending on which outlet you had read. But you're right. I mean, we, we wound up offering uh, a minority position in that card fractionally uh, for a little over $6 million. We did not buy it. We did not broker it. It was a private sale in excess of $5.2 million. And we took, you know, sort of a small percentage of the total asset value. We offered it on Collectibles platform so everyone can participate in this historic moment. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, it's probably my favorite asset on the platform, but I am extremely biased as a Baltimore fan, as somebody who's grown up going to the Babe Ruth Museum, as somebody who is a member of the Babe Ruth Museum. And I can't stress enough, if anybody does come to Baltimore as a tourist to an Oriole game, whatever it is, uh, absolutely make your way to the Babe Ruth Museum. It's truly one of the, the great uh, sports museums in, in the country. So I'm really thrilled that that piece is staying there. Um, and, and this is some of what I talk about. Uh, you know, you may not have it in your hand. You don't want it in your hand. The security on that piece alone um, I get to go into the museum, I get to show my kids, and I get to say, hey, we own a piece of that. Um, you know, I, I was shocked to see the Sadahara uh, O bat on, uh, and that was fantastic. I, that's that's actually one of my biggest holdings. Uh, I, I love that piece. So the diversity of the items. Um, can you just talk a little bit? Do you guys have an intentional mix of, you know, cards versus memorabilia, vintage versus modern? Do you have goals you're shooting for? Or is it more of just kind of, you know, the, uh, the, the performance, uh, you know, past results, you, you hope for future performance? Yeah, so, so that's a great question. I mean, I'll be candid. I mean, we really haven't focused on, you know, on the mix so much as we have just kind of the, the cool factor of the assets and trying to give people a little taste of different things, right? But so we've got, you know, some modern, some vintage. We've tried to dabble in, you know, sort of all the various sports, cards, memorabilia. You know, I think if, if you look at our mix currently, it definitely skews. I think it's about two-thirds or three-quarters cards uh, and the rest memorabilia and photographs and, now we have an NFT and tickets, and so we're, we're definitely gradually expanding to, to other categories. It is something we're starting to think about more, right? Just in the sense where, you know, again, we, we want to provide people with as many opportunities, but we don't want it to be completely skewed in one direction and forgetting about other directions. Um, you know, the, the the way we've worked is primarily on consignment, right? and so a lot of times it's we're kind of uh, vetting out the things that you know come inbound to us, right? So we haven't necessarily kind of going out and saying, hey, we need more of this, we need more of this, let's go out and acquire. Right? A lot of other platforms do actively acquire their own inventory. You know, we haven't had the need to, just given our, our access to, you know, to the collectors and 
uh, and uh, you know, sort of amazing pieces on the market. So really we've used uh, not so much sort of a mix uh, focus or, or filter, if you will. It's really just been, you know, hey, is it, checking, is it checking the boxes, right? Like, is it an iconic underlying athlete? Is it culturally and historically relevant? Do we, do we believe in the upside? Um, and is it something that, you know, we, we think is cool, right? And, you know, I'll be candid. I mean, there, there are some assets on the public that looking back, obviously, you know, you, 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 know, you sort of grow and learn as you go. Of course, we're still a very new entity. There are, are some assets in the public that, you know, are some assets on the platform, I should say, that I wish weren't there, right? Because I don't think they, they necessarily check all those boxes, right? So I think, I do think as, as you look forward, uh, we, we definitely are sort of filtering things a little bit more. We are being a little bit more aggressive and, and kind of saying, hey, look, what are some iconic things that are just not on the platform yet? Let's 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 make sure to go out and get it. So, you know, all 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 part of our journey, all part of you know a learning experience and recognizing you know what's worked, what hasn't, and obviously trying to correct our course as much as we possibly can. Um, but yeah, I, I do think there's some some incredible, incredible pieces. I I too love that oh bad and get oh bad's just a really unique cool piece. You, you rarely see things of his. And you know, obviously I think as international interest continues to grow in the hobby. And as international interest grows in sports overall, I think that the piece is going to be one that um, will, will, look, will, will look really, really interesting over time. And um, so, yeah, and I think I think you've 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 definitely got good taste, and I haven't done a clap for sure. Well, uh, you guys are very forward thinking, and and I don't want to take up too much of your time, but uh, I know you guys are right now because you're SEC regulated. You are uh, trading in the United States only. I know you uh, would love to get to Canada. Um, one of the things that strikes me, and, and I'll share some of my investing secrets, but these are my personal thoughts and recommendations, make that very clear, is if you look at expansion uh, specifically on soccer moving forward, and then you look at the market that you're unable to reach right now that will be growing in the future. I think you have certain sports. I think, you know, you look at the hockey items, you have Etchkin items. Uh, is it a Bobby Orr jersey that's coming out soon, uh, if I'm correct on that? And uh, the Canadian market opens up a lot of that. So from an investment standpoint, to me, on the platform, I'm looking at the things I personally invest in, a lot of vintage, a lot of rare stuff. But I'm actually going into some modern soccer in some areas that, you know, uh, that I may not have just based upon my perception of where you guys are headed. Without commenting on the assets, can you just kind of talk about a general plan for moving forward? And, uh, you know, I don't want to put the cart before the horse here. I know you guys are just getting your feet under you, but, but where are you looking? Yeah, I mean, look, I'd say this, right? I mean, we we definitely believe this is a big, you know, sort of international global opportunity. Obviously, sports is something that is everywhere across the world. And, you know, the, the, you know, there's sports and there's collectibles of sports. So we're absolutely looking at you know, this as, as a global play. Um, you know, sort of, I'd say the expansion to other countries has just made it a little bit more tricky, obviously, given the fact that these are securities or we've, we've qualified these with the SEC and, Again, without boring people to death with securities laws, you know, each country and oftentimes each province within countries have their own security laws you have to uh, you know, sort of ad adhere to. And, and that's just stuff that that's complexities on our end that, that we're working through actively. Uh, I do fully expect us to get there, obviously. Uh, Canada certainly is a big market, especially for hockey, as you mentioned. We also we have great connections in Canada, big hockey fans. And you know, we, we see, I mean, almost on a daily basis, people, collectors, uh, especially hockey collectors in Canada asking when we're going to be able to, you know, sort of open the platform to them. So we're, we're really eager and working as hard as we can, as quickly as we can to, to, to try to open up uh, the, the Canadian market. Um, you know, look, I think, you know, there's, there's also all sorts of big markets out there. I mean, again, if you, if you just look at sort of inbound interest from different countries, honestly, there's, we have people calling in or writing in, I should say, from countries that honestly I didn't even realize were 
for countryside. I've never, I've never heard of some of these places, but you know, you're, you're, is, big, you're big in Malta. Yeah, we honestly, Malta, I mean, Guam is another one. I didn't realize Guam was a real place. I thought it was more of just an expression, right? But yeah, yeah, apparently it's a real place. Um, so yeah, China, we uh, a lot of people in China, Israel, um, Dubai, Australia, New Zealand, all over Europe. It's exciting. I mean, it, it's both, it's both really exciting, but also really frustrating, right? Because ultimately, all we want to do is say, of course, of course, come one, come all, right? We, we want to grow as quickly as we possibly can. But look, we also believe regulation is a massive, massive part of all this. Right? And I think my, my personal belief, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this as well, but my personal belief is that the lack of regulation has unfortunately led to some bad actors in the industry obviously you know this industry is no you know no uh, stranger to fraud to manipulation to you know bad actors to counterfeit material you 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 name it it's happened and to, i, I to really me, think to me it mirrors corporate america i just want to say that when i talked about the, when i talked about regular investments this this to me is an identical match of corporate america go ahead i just you know people don't always realize that yeah. So, you know, I think I think in, in order for this industry to really, really catch fire in a big, big way, a couple of things have to happen. But, you know, one is you have to have a degree of regulation and right? it's got to you've got to reestablish trust or right? you have to reinstill trust in the market and trust in the market leads to confidence of investors, which leads to more money being deployed into it. I also think, you know, it's really important to open this up to people who want exposure but don't have the time or the knowledge and expertise to do all the due diligence i mean there's a lot of intricacies to the market i mean even even something that looks you know two, two things can look identical to an untrained eye but they're drastically different in terms of fine details and price points and so you know i think there's a level of curation and a level of expertise and sort of qualitative factors um that that is required and you know i think collectible obviously is really strong in that too and also and then, and then when you think about how people are looking at these things i mean there's sure you still have your purest collectors who want to you know touch and see things in their home and hang on the walls but as price points continue to rise right, and you, you 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 actually said this at the beginning of the podcast you don't even want to have in your house right because it's it's so valuable it's, it almost becomes a liability whether from an insurance perspective or from you know fear of someone breaking into your house perspective i mean there's a lot of reasons why, you know, as the values continue to rise on iconic pieces, you actually don't even want it in your possession. And so at that point, you know, you could create a security out of it. And that gives you a lot of liquidity and flexibility and optionality, the ability to bring in, you know, much bigger institutional uh, resources and capital to really take this industry as an asset class to the next level. So I think the the securitization of, of all this, the, the, the recognizing that there's a seismic shift going on where, of course, you always have collectors, of course, and we're, we're definitely not trying to change that, but also just recognizing that people are looking at these more and more like investments. And if they are investments, then you have to treat them as such. Right? And so I think, I think collectible is really helping to, 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 to move the industry forward in a way that I think will be really productive and ultimately over time, over time, will lead to, to higher and higher prices. Yeah, I, I think there will be a day where uh, you'll be talking about institutional investors, and I, I think that will will be unbelievable. Uh, the first time a teachers union uh, invests in Sadahar, oh, I, I will be very proud. Um, I just want to wrap it up real quickly. You guys have uh, been big sponsors of the Mint Collective. Uh, I think it's a great mm -hmm. idea. Um, some really, really top players in the industry. 
And, uh, you know, this, this is not meant, my understanding is this complements everything else the industry does. This is not uh, meant to, you know, overshadow uh, the industry summit or the national or anything like that, but it's, it's actually a unique event. Uh, could you just kind of touch on what makes it unique? And for the person that has to choose between the $15 ticket or the $700 ticket, uh, what, what are they getting when, when they get to get in there? What's the quality of the speakers and, and, and the autograph guest? And, and what is the marketplace? Yeah, so, so this event was the brainchild uh, of Collectible of us and in partnership with IMG. IMG uh, is a subsidiary of a company called Endeavor, who is you know, sort of a big global sports media uh, company who owns the UFC and a lot of other big properties and you know, uh, you know, a few big sports agencies, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Endeavor and IMG uh, really came to us, I, I would say, and say, hey, look, we have a real interest in getting exposure to the collectibles category. We recognize that there's, you know, sort of a lot going on there. And, you know, we think collectible is a, is sort of a really unique company that's helping to innovate and, and do great things and help take the industry to the next level. So we partnered up with, uh, with IMG and Endeavor to create a conference, right? And you know, it's actually supposed to be this month. It was supposed to be January 20, uh, 28th to 30th, I believe. We unfortunately had to postpone it for COVID reasons. We rescheduled it to uh, March 25th to 27th, it'll be in Las Vegas. Um, and uh, I think it's a really awesome event. I mean, you know, ultimately it is, you'll see some similarities between the national and the industry summit. And it, it certainly will uh, look and feel familiar in some respects, but in a lot of ways it'll be very different. I do want to make this point very clear. This is not competitive to the national. This is not competitive to the industry summit. We've got great respect for them. You know, honestly, I believe there's room in, you know, in the calendar for many, many, many more events. But, you know, I think this is particularly unique. You know, one, one thing uh, that, that we recognize about the National as amazing of an event as that is, and everyone should go and kind of experience the, the, the energy if you haven't been, it's a lot of dealers. You know, it's a lot of transactions, right? And it's very busy and loud and noisy. And uh, But there's not a lot of time for connection and community and, uh, and thought leadership and talking about the, you know, in, in, in education, right? Really talking about kind of the, the future of the industry and getting smarter as a collector, getting smarter as an investor. We really thought that that was something, especially as hopefully millions of new participants are coming into this category, whether as an investor or a collector or an institutional fund or what, whatever your role is in the industry, uh, we thought it'd be great to really emphasize education. And you know, sort of bridging the the knowledge gap, right? So what we did is effectively we put together these panels, and uh, the panels are compiled of real industry leaders and thought leaders and people who are you know big business owners and uh, big dealers and big collectors, and really just want to have uh, you know good, good good discussions about you know really relevant topics around the you know the the state of the industry today, where the industry is going, and really helping to you know in this time and period of immense change and overhaul to really kind of band together and, um, and to sort of present the united front and, you know, help people really get up to speed on all the things that are happening and hopefully learn uh, kind of how to be more engaged and active uh, in the hobby, right? So that's, that's, that's really what we did. I mean, you know, some of the bigger names, obviously, you know, we got Dana White, who's, you know, who's the founder of the UFC. Obviously, the UFC is owned by IMG. We'll be doing a cool event uh, Saturday evening of that weekend at the UFC Apex headquarters over there in Las Vegas. I think a name everyone, a lot of people want to hear from right now is Josh Luber, who's running Fanatics' trading card division. Um, 
Fantastic. I think you guys are doing a great job. Keep up the good work. Uh, Thank you very much. Definitely t- definitely tell uh, Jeffrey Mayer that I, I would love to speak to him. <laughs> and I assume my Mint Collective uh, panel invite uh, got lost in the mail. So we'll, we'll wait for next year. We will We will definitely have a ticket with, with your name on it for sure. I'd love to see you there. And uh, one more thing about Baltimore, because I know you're, you're local. The, uh, the Baltimore News Babe Ruth card is going to be arriving back in Baltimore shortly. The, the museum, I know, is building out a custom exhibit for the card. It's currently not at the card. It's Believe me, it's kept in safekeeping. It's vaulted and insured and all that stuff. But as soon as that uh, exhibit is ready to be released and unveiled, I believe it'll be over the next month or so, the card will be back in Baltimore. A hop, skip, and jump away from you. And uh, when, when that does happen, I know Collectible is planning on doing something fun at the Babe Ruth Museum, so you'll, you'll have to come on down for that for sure. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I wouldn't miss it for anything. Ezra Levine, CEO of Collectible.com, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it, and uh, we will talk Anytime. to you again in the future. Anytime. You know why this podcast sounds so good? Because I work with Leon at Digital Empath Studios, Baltimore's number one podcasting studio. For all your podcasting needs, contact Leon He will help you get your podcast, your recording, your music career off the ground and in the right direction. He does an incredible job for me and for my podcast, and I know he will for you as well. That's digitalempathstudios.com. Thank you for listening to Sports Bolt, a Baltimore Sports Collectibles podcast. I can be reached on all social media at Sports Bolt, and that's S-P-O-R-T-S-B-A-L-T, and online at sportsbolt.com. All opinions expressed on the show are solely mine or that of our guest. No information should be relied on for any investment decisions. Advertising packages are now available. Please contact me for options. Thanks, and I'll talk to you in the next episode. (laughs) 